I'm David Torsivia. I'm Daniel Forkner. And this is Ashes, Ashes, a show about systemic issues, cracks in civilization, collapse in the environment, and if we're unlucky, the end of the world. But if we learn from all of this, maybe we can stop that. The world might be broken, but it doesn't have to be. Why don't we let people have computers or because if you're, if you're saying like we're going to rehabilitate people, which first of all, that's just co- totally BS. But like it, no one's no one's saying that, Daniel. <laughs> but if the idea is, oh, you know, we send people to prison to rehabilitate them. That's not the idea, Daniel. Well, no, I mean, I know it's like total, total bullshit, but I'm saying some people will say that. The official idea is let's punish these people. Which is also bullshit, which I'll get to. I will also get to that. Let's say you take punishment, right? If the goal of prison is punishment, like you're punishing people because you want to deter them from doing the crime. And so if you're saying, oh, we're punishing them to prevent them from doing crime, then your goal is like stability in places. Like you want society to be a calmer place where people follow the rules. Okay, if that's what your goal is, then give people YouTube in prison, right? No, Daniel, they see it like you're like grounding a kid who like was bad. And so now they're not allowed on TikTok for, you know, a week. You take, you, you take their cell phone. Yeah. So like, they're like, oh, this person was bad. Now we're going to take away everything from them for 20 to life. So. I mean, I guess that's a good point. Like, you know, the hell world we live in where like everyone's unemployed and people are starving. Like if you actually could have Netflix in prison, I feel like that. Wait, Daniel, save rambles like that for our live streams available on twitch.tv slash ashes ashes cast maybe on tuesdays maybe on thursdays subscribe and you'll get notifications whenever we go live going live wait when did we start a twitch i thought this was a podcast it's everything daniel this is the new future the new media tiktok (laughs) is coming maybe someday who knows we're just trying to stay on it trying to get out there trying to make sure that we are constantly revealing the horrible ways that this world is broken in every possible media format, streaming, broadcasting, uh, smoke signals. Oh, I don't know. We're working on it. That sounds exciting. I, w- I want to sign up for that. Well, you can. I want to subscribe. Twitch.tv slash ashes, ashes cast. We hope to catch you there. Save 10%. Save, save 10% if you subscribe today. No, Daniel, it's free. Oh. Free. No ads, like always. So I like how we um, took a break because we were so busy. And then we're like, you know what? Let's restart the podcast, but let's do it in a manageable way. You know, let's not go so deep into our deep dives. Let's make it a little bit more casual. Oh, and let's uh, do live streaming twice a week. (laughs) Well, so you make a good point. Um, The live streams are very chill. We spend some of the time researching and just shooting the shit, sometimes even playing games. So uh, it's not a huge workload bonus. We're not like preparing for these shows. So, uh, yeah, you know, tune in, enjoy it. Grab a cup of coffee, eight o'clock at night, nine o'clock at night. Get the blood juices <laughs> never, flowing. Never go to sleep. Send us some. Yeah. If you sleep, it's, uh, that's where the, the horrors of this world turn into the horrors of your dreams. So 24 hours, well, always away. Well, uh, speaking of 24 hours, what are we talking about today? Um, we are talking about horrors, Daniel. Yeah, deep horrors, uh, specifically unfair sentencing in this so-called justice system uh, that the American legal uh, world has built for us. And we're going to hear from a couple guests, uh, just a, you know, a brief interview, chat about some real world stuff. 
And um, why don't we just dive in, David? Yeah. Why don't you get us started? All right. Well, let's just look at the, the broad strokes here. There was a 2019 report authored by the Council on Criminal Justice that finds that Black and Latinx people continue to be incarcerated at far higher rates than whites. Quote, although Black people's imprisonment rates have gone down between 2000 and 2016, the length of prison sentences in prison continues to increase vis-a-vis those for white people. Put plainly, black people are in prison far longer than white peers, and the disparity is growing, end quote. And, you know, here's something I find interesting about uh, this report. We all know the war on drugs was a massive failure, and a criminal attempt to carry forward slavery by incarcerating black and brown people as much as possible. And people have spoken out on this. Uh, There's been a lot of public outrage uh, about the war on drugs. And what do you know? The justice, quote unquote, justice system has responded. The number of black men that are in prison for drug offenses has decreased by 50% in that same 2000 to 2016 period. And property crimes um, have also decreased by 24%. But at the same time, the number of black men being sent to prison for other crimes has increased enough to wipe out half of all that progress. From the paper, quote, prison time for black people grew at a rate almost twice as fast as white people in that period. Now, experts list a handful of reasons for the growing disparity, and here is one of those reasons. Quote, pressure some prosecutors may feel to seek harsher sentences in cases involving violent charges at a time when there is pressure to use incarceration less for nonviolent convictions, end quote. Uh, Let that sink in. U.S. prosecutors are pressured. They have uh, quotas. They are not seeking justice. They are seeking imprisonment. We put less black people in prison for one crime. Well, then let's extend the sentences for them on other crimes. This is the justice system that we have. It is less to do with justice than whatever profit and control is accumulated from putting bodies in prison. And obviously, this is disproportionately impacting black and brown communities. And David, we'll get into in a little bit later about how we should respond to this. But it's clear that, you know, we as public people have recognized that, for instance, the war on drugs was a failure. But our outcry, which has resulted in less sentencing, has only increased punishments elsewhere. This justice system that we have is not trying to be just. Can we just go ahead and every time we say the word justice system, just imagine we're making huge air quotes around the word justice. Enormous. Like- justice <laughs> system. Because, <laughs> oh my God. I know we talked about some of this stuff before on here, Daniel. You know, we did those episodes on um, the sham that is forensic science and just how basically everything that you think is real based on CSI is completely made up and there are thousands and tens of thousands and maybe i don't know how many people in prison or with criminal records on their their forever records because of this sham science and the ability to fool jurors in that but you know maybe this is like it's part of a this this expanding look at, at the justice system so i mean that's that's the science used to make people guilty and again giant air quotes around the word science there but then after somebody's charged and then found guilty comes the sentencing, right? And this is a whole nother way that the justice system is entirely broken. And we're going to explore why this is and how it is over the next however long. And then, you know, the prisons themselves is another conversation. And I'm sure we'll get to that. The cops on the other end and basically throughout this system, they're broken. 
prosecutors, they're broken. The judges, they're broken. The lawmakers, they're broken. This is the most broken system that I think we look at out of everything that we've done in this show, which is, I mean, just like some absolutely completely fucked parts of the earth, whether it's environmental, whether it's pollution or, or whatever. The criminal justice system in the United States, I feel very confident in saying, at least in my opinion, is the most fucked up thing that I have ever had the misfortune of spending time digging into. And for those people who know this well, you know, I'm sorry, because that usually means that you know well, because it's chewed you up and spit you back out. And it's so important to talk about this stuff, because while many of us are fortunate and, uh, and we'll never have a direct interaction, or, you know, maybe we get picked up and processed and released, and then, it's, you know, it's a minor misdemeanor, or we have a traffic uh, fine, whatever it is, for huge portions of the population, the prison is one of the only sort of guaranteed things that they will encounter at some point. I mean, more black men will go to prison than they will go to college here in the United States. So it is a huge portion of a lot of people's lives in this country, and it is one of the worst institutions, not just in the United States, but in the entire world. And not only in the entire world, but basically throughout all of human history. These subjects are very important. And splitting it down to these little bite-sized chunks, like today we're going to be talking about this minimum sentencing, the way that this uh, three strikes law, so other things can intersect to basically destroy people's lives over things that really shouldn't. It allows you to process this as like a single small thing, because if you just look at everything overall, man, just, it just feels so hopeless. Mm. With that said... Well, real quick, that that forensic episode, uh, episode 24, Suspect Science, like I really highly recommend it. When you tell people that forensic science is is made up, there you get met with a certain bit of incredulity. If I'm saying that word right, but it's it's really I, I've always said incredulity, but I don't actually know what's right. Like we don't have a monopoly on language here. Let's just flow with it, you know. Yeah, language should be flexible. It's very very fluid. We're not flexible. we're not grammar cops, grammar Nazis here. No, we're not cops at all. We should never. N- <laughs> We're not sending grammar to, to prison. No, we're not no language. Mandatory jail. minimum sentence length. Um, what was what was I what was I saying? Forensic science. Yeah. So incredulity that people have, <laughs> e- even your precious fingerprints. Right? People always think, oh, fingerprints. They're so. Look, you want to be a forensic scientist? Go online, pay a three hundred dollar fee for some like week long online course. Then you find a police department anywhere in the country. By the way, it doesn't have to be nearby who is going to like you. Anytime they get a suspected criminal, they're like, yeah, this is our guy. What they're going to do is they're going to take his fingerprints, they're going to ship it to you, and they're going to be like, hey, uh, do these two things look alike in your professional opinion? And then you, with your $300 certificate and week-long education, you're going to be like, yeah, I'm looking at these on a computer. They look pretty much identical. And then they're going to go to court. To be fair, you're only going to say yeah if you want to get more work from this police agency. Yeah. Do you want to get paid in this world where everyone's unemployed? Yeah, I think so. I think you do. You do want to get paid. And then they're going to take your testimony. They're going to go in front of a jury and they're going to say, we have expert testimony from Mr. Big Shot forensic scientist that says no two fingerprints are the same and these two are a match. And then that guy goes to prison for life. That's forensic science in a nutshell. Yeah, it really is that ridiculous. But, you know, incidentally, I was reading, I think this past week that, uh, Human fingerprints and koala fingerprints uh, look basically the same, and a bunch of forensic scientists can't tell the difference and are mixing them up. But Whoa. you know, then the question is: is 
what kind of crime scenes are covered in koala fingerprints? <laughs> how many how many people have we been sending to prison? I don't know. A question for the listener. Mm, the real conspiracy. Well, okay, so back to the topic. One in seven people in a U.S. prison are serving lifetime sentences. These people alone? That's that blew my mind, by the way. That's a, that's a big number. And those people, the number of people, that one in seven that are you know, serving for life, that outnumbers the entire country's prison population in the early 1970s. And the proportion of black men at this end of the prison population spectrum is extraordinarily high. A huge percentage of them uh, were incarcerated as youth in their 20s or whatever. The bottom line is our society and our uh, justice system turns a blind eye towards this gross injustice. And it turns an, a blind eye toward people like Willie Simmons. Now let's turn to Chris and Bonnie of the Justice for Willie. You know, it, uh, Bonnie and Chris, this thought just occurred to me, and I feel like you've missed a huge branding opportunity to not call the campaign Free Willie. I don't know about that one, David. Free Willie. So, okay, well, well, jokes aside, Daniel, this is actually an incredible case and, and something that I think really highlights a lot of the topics we're covering over this episode and part of the reason why we're making this episode in the first place. Uh, Willie Simmons, to give you the very, very, very short version, uh, he had two prior felonies um, on his record in Alabama. Uh, he committed a third felony, which was uh, he mugged a guy. Um, he didn't have any weapons, but he told the guy he had a gun. Uh, he took $9 from this guy. He was caught by the police a couple blocks later, went to trial. His trial lasted 25 minutes. He was found guilty of a felony. And according to this law that Alabama has called the Habitual Felony Offender Act, it meant that he had a mandatory minimum sentence of uh, life with parole to life without parole. And uh, unfortunately for Willie, he got life without parole and he's been serving his time ever since, um, a lifetime in prison over the theft of $9 and a sentence of, you know, I have a gun. He's been in prison for 38 years. He's now 62 years old. And Chris and Bonnie, who we're going to interview, set up a website for him. It's justiceforwilliesimmons.org with a lot of resources on how to help. But why don't we let them tell us what we need to do? Hey, Bonnie. Hey, Chris. Hey, Bonnie. Hey, Chris. Hello. Hi. So, my name's Chris. I live in Boston, Massachusetts. And I, I think of myself as the coordinator for the group. Um, I sort of start off by recruiting people into the effort. And so, my role has, I think, has changed over time. And it's basically just to try and keep people talking, primarily through email. So I'm Bonnie. I'm based in Brooklyn, New York. Although I grew up in Alabama, which is where Willie is in prison. I'm just one of the volunteers, I guess you could say, who connected with Chris via social media after hearing of Willie's situation, specifically reached out to a Twitter account that Chris had started to see how I could be linked up with everybody. And um, I guess since I work in media, I'm and as the media contact in the group. Nice. Great. So, Chris, it sounds like uh, you ended up bringing a lot of these people together, I guess, through your initial viewing of this tweet. Could you tell us a little bit about how you found out about this story and exactly 
who it really is and what that story is? Sure. So um, there was a there was a Twitter thread in December of um, last year by a journalist by the name of Beth Shelbourne, and it went fairly viral. It was a like a twenty part tweet in which she reviewed a conversation she had on the phone with Willie Simmons and his predicament. You know, what one of the takeaways I had from the initial tweet was uh, besides the fact that this was just an amazing example of just something that's wrong, um, was that Twitter was not a great way for a lot of people to communicate with at that volume. And it seemed like even simple information about like lots of people want to have know how to write him a letter. And they just wanted to know an address. And it was just, it was just, you know, a massive Twitter thread like that. There was a lot of information being repeated and bad information. Um, And so one of my first thoughts was, well, if I just had a web page that I could include, if nothing else, just uh, his snail mail address, then people would have a common place to come and, and find that specific piece of information. For people who don't know who Willie Simmons is, who is he? What is his story? Why does his story resonate in particular at this time? In 1982, he was um, convicted of first-degree robbery. He was 25 years old. And at that point, the the prosecutor decided to charge him um, under Alabama's Habitual Felony Offender Act. Basically, that's Alabama's version of three-strike law. What that means is that basically the hand, the, the judge's hands are tied and they're, they're not given any discretion at that point. And the person is sentenced to life in prison without parole. So since the age of 25 in 1982, Willie Simmons has, has been in jail in, in Alabama. So, Bonnie, what's your sense of uh, Willie, Willie's story? You know, with the, the sentencing, does it match the crime? I mean, what was the crime? So the other two nonviolent crimes that Willie was charged for prior, I believe one was receiving stolen goods and another was with an automobile. But there was the, the part of the mystery, I guess, in us coming together to help Willie is that there's actually the, the third felony has been unclear to us within the team of volunteers some of which are in the legal field. And in Beth's Twitter story, she even says that this other third offense is not clear. And for Willie, it's also not clear. So it's just a travesty that not only here in 2020, it's not recorded clearly. None of the crimes are violent. He's behind bars in Alabama, where prisons are at 170% capacity and 30% staff. They're deplorable conditions that's been highlighted by multiple media outlets and the federal government may need to take over. So why, and that the bigger picture is not only is Willie's story such a tragedy and so unnecessary and not true justice in the form of American justice, but why is this habitual felony offender act still in place in keeping so many other people, mainly people of color behind bars? Right. And to just play on that, um, I mean, just um, I think it was a month ago, Beth had another tweet about another individual that was sentenced under the Habitual Felony Offender Act. And this guy was like in his 20s. Um, and it was the same scenario. You know, it's like these, non, these nonviolent criminals are being sent to jail for the rest of their life. 
And so just so we're clear, the offending, you know, nail in the coffin for Willie's, you know, three strike uh, verdict was he stole, what was it, like $9? Is that right? Yes, that's that right. So the, you know, he, he basically, he, he mugged the guy. And in the process, he said, he said, I have a gun, even though he didn't have a gun. And that put him into the category of the first degree robbery charge. It's sort of a catch-22 because when, you know, reviewing lots of the appeals he does, the judges say um, they're not in jurisdiction. And as I understand it, that means that the judges are saying, you know, we can't even give an opinion on this appeal because it was filed under this um, statute called the Kirby Law. Kirby Law was enacted in 2001 and was repealed in 2014. And it was supposed to allow prisoners to petition to have their sentences reduced. But in uh, Willie Simmons's case, the judges keep saying that, that the crime was violent and involved a gun, which it didn't involve a gun, but he was convicted of the law, which you would be convicted of if you did have a gun. So it's, they, they won't even look at the appeals that are being sent to them. So this sounds to me like uh, it's a failure on, on so many levels. Uh, one, of course, is the mandatory minimum sentencing that's required through acts like that Alabama statute or the three strikes law in, in California, uh, but also in the failure of uh, Willie's public defender. I, I read that he said his trial was over in something like 25 minutes and a, a competent defender or somebody who had the time or interest probably could have come into the situation and argued that, you know, felony assault and burglary or whatever the, the exact charge was down to a lower crime and he wouldn't have been in this situation in the first place. But uh, it's it's really an indictment of the justice process from the entire thing, from from the, the conviction of the crime, um, the trial that happened, and then now this process of appeal and the fact that he, that we have to be in the situation at all. So it's encouraging, though, to, to see people coming out and trying to advocate for people uh, who have no one on the outside. I mean, Willie, after, after decades in prison, I'm sure his outside contacts at this point have disappeared. And so it must be really encouraging for him to have people reaching out and, and trying to offer help, especially after all this time has passed. So have y'all been interacting with Willie? Um, you know, what is the response? I, it seems based on Twitter and the website and these petitions that are out there that there's a lot of people interested in this case, but is there any developments there? Is there any hope? So one of the members in our group, Stacy, she um, gets calls from Willie pretty much on a weekly basis and she writes him frequently and um she said that you know his his response is yeah he, he really appreciates the fact that you know his case is getting some publicity and that people are paying attention yeah and one of the peti online petitions there's six online petitions one of them has almost 2.9 million people signing it you know that's that's good um but you know it's how, how do you how do we get it to the next level is what we're trying to figure out uh, yeah, we were lucky that Stacy um, has been a point of contact directly with him and that um, I'm sure other people in the group have perhaps written to him as well. And then uh, one of the main things that we first wanted to determine when speaking with him was, in fact, if he had a lawyer or not, and he does not have a lawyer. What is your group's main goals in supporting Willie? And is it is it just to support him and getting a, a better appeal or is it connected to a broader struggle to repeal some of these three strike and minimum sentencing laws? And like, are there other organizations you're working with, you know, as part of like a solidarity movement around this? 
yeah, so I mean, I think for for our group, you know, we're we're very focused on just Willie Simmons, um, and we're focused at the moment on trying to figure out how to get him a lawyer. Bonnie mentioned there's just general confusion about does he have a legal path forward, and only a lawyer can can explain that to us. I mean, maybe he does, maybe he doesn't. The other solution is Governor Kay Ivey giving him a pardon or accommodation of so. One of the other things we try and <laughs> we try and brainstorm is how how do we get her attention? Yeah, I'd second that we're very focused on Willie and trying to give him a fair opportunity at a second chance and to be back in society. But um, I do think that the habitual felony offender act is one thing that we also recognize might be the biggest hurdle and fortunately would open up doors for other people if it was uh, retracted. Do either of you have any experience in organizing or activism in this area or any area before this event? Is this your first first time really getting into that world? I'm I'm curious. Yeah, in my in my case, it's my it's my first time. I don't I don't have any experience at all. Same. I'm more so uh, on the documenting arena and have just during this crazy pandemic been involved in Black Lives Matter movements in New York City area, which is what introduced me to his story. But um, this is definitely new territory for me. That's encouraging to hear. We, we keep hearing stories like that, especially with everything that happened during the pandemic. So, so good for both of y'all. That's awesome. So how do you, do you have any advice for people who, you know, maybe are in a similar situation where they want to help a cause, but they've never done something before? What, what have you found the best tools for connecting with people? I mean, the two of you are in different states. How are you maintaining communication and workflow and keeping the momentum amongst yourselves and drawing new people in? Well, I guess uh, most of it was done on, on Twitter, connecting up with people initially. Once I had some people, I tried to move some of the work and, and uh, chatting over to, you know, I've got, a, I've got a Trello board and I've got a Slack work group. Within the larger group, um, you know, we, we primarily use email. And then um, last month, we had our first um, video call. We've got Stacy, who's doing the contacting uh, Willie directly. We have uh, another, uh, Uwe, who he's on Twitter a lot, and he authored our Wikipedia page, which is being reviewed. And I understand it could take up to like eight weeks for that to get out. We have like three people who, who have been doing this work a lot, and they have a lot of experience and they know lawyers. So we're sort of leaning on them to see, you know, how, how are we going to get a lawyer if possible? Social media is a really great tool to stay aware, to stay connected. Slack as well. With the, the, I ended up uh, collaborating with a mutual aid in my area that had thousands of people on our Slack channel. And we've mobilized very quickly to help people with all sorts of needs in our community. So if you have a mutual aid in your community, that's another resource to look into. You can normally find a mutual aid in your community simply by searching in the name of your, your neighborhood, mutual aid, in Facebook groups. Um, a lot of them have gathered during this time. And then again, we use Slack. We talk on Zoom, functions like a business almost. And then within Willie, we're utilizing it as well. Whereas there's a growing but small and mighty force of us. Awesome. If we have listeners who want to help out with Willie's story or with this general types of activism, uh, where would you all point them? What's the best thing they can do to help? Is it signing petitions? Is it actually sending Willie money? Is it calling officials? What's, what's the best plan of action? 
I guess probably at the moment it's um, still trying to put pressure on the governor. Um, and I guess, you know, probably letter writing, um, you know, social media is always good, but I, you know, I don't personally have any proof that she reads social media. So probably letter, letter writing is a good avenue. Um, the webpage, org has links and addresses, um, an email address for me if, uh, if people have ideas or, or if people have a lawyer sitting around that's not doing anything and they want to volunteer. <laughs> Thank you so much, Chris. Thank you so much, Bonnie. Best of luck to you and to Willie Simmons. Well, thank you so much for having us. It was great. Really appreciate it. Thank you both. David, I just have one important takeaway from this. Obviously, you go to justiceforwilliesimmons.org. But for me, I think what's so important about this is that this group uh, started by Chris and now collaborating with multiple people, uh, these people didn't break the story. They aren't big shot journalists on the front lines with the vice contract or whatever. They're just regular people who saw a Twitter thread from a, another journalist. It went viral. And they thought to themselves, well, what's next? What's the follow through? How can people help? And they didn't see those answers in these big Twitter threads where people were just chatting back and forth. So they decided to answer those questions themselves. And we can all learn from that and encounter the narrative that only people with certifications or degrees, you know, special clearances or whatever other made up permissions are needed to create and inspire change in this world and to advocate for someone. I mean, we don't have any certifications, David. Speak for yourself. I'm an ordained minister. Um, <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just trying to... Yeah, you don't, you don't have a response to that. I have no response to that. Jokes aside, Daniel, that is an incredible story not just in terms of people coming together to help Willie, but the fact that these are people inspired enough to come together with no experience or knowledge in this field and say, you know what, maybe actually coming and, and doing the hard work here because this type of organizing is not fun. It's a lot of work, but doing this hard work can actually make a positive difference in the world. And, and I love to see that. And I love to see people inspired to take these types of actions into their own hands and, and their thoughts and the, what they're doing is not only helpful for Willie, but it's also viral in the sense that it inspires others to do the same. But as inspired as I am at the same time, Daniel, I am so mad. What do, what, I'm, I'm, what do you mad? You're mad, David. What are you mad about? Well, you know, I'm mad for Willie and the time he spent in prison over this just like ridiculous crime. It's a literal life destroyed because we have these ridiculous laws. But as mad as I am for Willie and as inspired I am by the people working to help him, what makes me really, really mad is all these people who got off with nothing. There are so many people out there who have committed crimes that are so egregious mm -hmm. that have stolen thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions or billions of dollars from people and they faced very little to zero punishment at all and there's a lot of interesting things about these people um i'll let you guess at what type of uh skin color most of them have and uh these white collar criminals uh, as because society sees them as non-violent they aren't subject to the sort of 
uh, violent gotchas that Willie has in his life that's preventing him from being able to appeal his sentence. So it's very interesting to me, and it makes me really mad that people who are doing more material harm to the world aren't seen as the ones doing violence. And, and I mean, don't even get me started as like the real criminals, like, you know, George Bush is responsible for a million dead Iraqis. And he is currently selling a book of paintings he made about immigrants in order to bring recognition to immigrants and their plight, even though he's the man who literally created ICE. That aside, and I'm so mad about that, focusing just on Willie, how mad I am about this, let's, let's I think, explore some of these people, just a few, just a handful, because there's so many examples of this, of, of people who have gotten away basically without any sort of repercussions based on the magnitude of the financial crimes they committed. I have an example. Okay. Because I looked, I looked some of these up beforehand. I did too. I have a whole giant list. That's something we do on this show is uh, homework and research. Sometimes. So uh, there was a man <clears throat> named Bernard J. Ebers, former CEO of the company Worldcom. Worldcom. Not no, that's World World Star, David. Oh. But it is a media. It was a media company, so pretty pretty close. Well, he committed eleven billion with a B dollars worth of accounting fraud, which was described at the time as the largest corporate fraud case in U.S. history. And dude, wait. Hold on one sec. Yeah. Hold up. I'm pulling out a calculator right here because sure. I'm just doing some mental math, you know, and I'm saying <laughs> Willie had it's, to spend a lifetime in prison for $9. So it's not really mental math if you're using a calculator, though. Okay. Well, it's mental assisted math, calculator assisted mental math. So I'm typing in my mental model uh, $11 billion. And I'm going to divide that by Willie's $9 to see how many life sentences. Six zeros, by the way. Seven, no, nine. Yeah, I know. I can count to a billion. Thank you. Nine, nine zeros. Okay. I've got a number. I know how many life sentences this guy is serving currently. Twelve zeros? It's, uh, it, no, it's nine it's, zeros. It's six zeros. No, six, is, six zeros is a million. We're talking billion with a B, David. Big B. Wait, am I doing enough here? One, that's millions. It's 11. Thousands. One, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. Yeah, nine, nine zeros. Yeah, nine zeros. Okay, yeah. We're good at math. Okay, divided by nine. I'm good at that one. That's just a number. Okay, I've got the number. I know how much, uh, how many life sentences this guy's serving. And it's uh, 1.2 billion. And um, let me see. Willie's already been in prison for 30 years, right? Uh, long, 38, I think. 38 years. So I'm just going to multiply that out. So this guy is going to be in prison longer, 10 times longer almost than there's been planet Earth. You know, he's got 46 billion years of prison time ahead of him. Oh, because you're saying he, based on the getting life sentence for Willie for $9, if he still has 11 billion. Yeah, it's $11 billion divided by 9 billion equals how many life sentences he's got. And Willie's already faced 38 years. So you multiply that number by 38. Yep. And now we've got 46 and a half billion years that he needs to spend in prison to get the same level of punishment as Willie. Hold up, though. Hold up. Another fact you need to consider is that this was called, in 2005, uh, the largest corporate fraud case in history. I did say that. And the sentence he got, okay, mm -hmm. that the judge handed down, the hammer. Yeah. The New York Times said that the sentence he got was the toughest sentence for corporate wrongdoing in memory. I'm not surprised. 46 billion years. Right. But no, it was uh, 25 years. 25 years. But he's... Nah. 
if, if that was the case, Daniel, you know, it would really reveal that this entire justice system that we have is nothing but a, a fraud. No, the reason why is because this guy, uh, uh, he did accounting fraud. That was his crime. So the judge used sentencing fraud to calculate 25 years in prison. Well, there's fraud somewhere along the way. But, you know, this is probably just a one-off sort of example. There's not tons of other people with similar numbers or even lower sentences based on other giant amounts of money stolen, right? Last year, Stephen uh, Kramer, <laughs> Stephen Kramer, maybe? I don't know. Kramer? Well, he's a former high-ranked NASA employee. So he's good at math. Yeah, and space. He stole $19,000 of federal money, and he took $18,000 in kickbacks for manipulating government contracts. Let me just pull out my calculator here. David, let me just save you some time. Let me send you- (laughs) 4,000 life sentences. Let me save you some mental math here. Uh, He got no jail time. Okay. He did get three years probation, Uh, one year of house arrest, but um, his- That's- no. He can leave home no. to go to work. <laughs> no, Daniel. What you're saying right now really makes it sound like this justice system is completely fraudulent. Well, I love the idea of like his crime was committed at work, so they gave him house arrest, but then they were like, well, you can still go to work, though. I mean, it's house arrest, but you can go to work. I think, you know what, I, now that I think about it, I think I did read this case. He's also allowed to like go out to like church and like family events and stuff, which really just sort of sounds like just living your normal life. It's actually more permissive than quarantine lockdown. Oh, yeah, you're right. No, actually, he can do anything that him and his probation officer work out. And considering he has experience in like kickbacks and like negotiation and, you know, manipulating the government system, that probably is like a whole lot of things that he can Wait, do. This, this happened last year. So this motherfucker stole 4,000 times what Willie stole and then got house arrest. And then a pandemic happened that forced him to be locked in his house anyway. Dang. Well, surely that is also just a one-off. And there's can't be more than two people. like. This. There's a branch manager here in Massachusetts um, uh, last year. Or no, 2018, two years ago, sorry. She stole $108,000 from eight elderly customers, one of whom was dying from cancer. I don't know if that's really relevant, but she stole well over $100,000 from these... Uh, um, people. Mm-hmm. She got a month. She got a month in prison. One month in prison for stealing money from people who literally were dying. Now she did have to give the money back, which I think is pretty harsh. Did she give the money back, or is that just like a court order thing, and she has to do it like over time? Well, it's only it's 2020 now. This was in 2018, and she's a branch manager, so I don't know if she's paid it back yet. Well, do pe- okay. you think people who you think people who steal a hundred grand like put it in a savings account? Like, man, I could make two percent on my money mo- money. <laughs> Money market account it's with like, this. If I only steal three million dollars and then I invest that in CDs, then I can take out three percent a year and then you know pay it back after it, and I've got another extra hundred thousand dollars here. That I no, I don't think they do that. Then. I think she's going to be paying that back a while. And you know, what if this cancer person who's dying from cancer dies? Does she still got to pay them back? I don't know. These are questions. But you know, to be fair, and I'm going to try and look at this from the side of a prosecutor, from the side of a, a judge who's working in the world's most corrupt system, the United States criminal justice system, and say, well, maybe, Daniel, it's because these are just financial white-collar crimes. And as a society, you know, we value the work of white-collar people. And, um, you know, we want to get them back out there doing work and stuff. And, and so uh, we have smaller crimes because in the end, these are more victimless crimes. It's businesses being hurt, not so much people. They weren't violent crimes. And so surely, surely anybody who's committing a violent crime 
say an assault, say a rape, say a murder, something like that, is going to be facing very serious penalties just like Willie. Um, I don't like I don't like this. Um, well, unfortunately, David, that's not how this justice system works. Air quotes. Real quick here, we just want to say that this is a trigger warning for uh, sexual assault. So if you want to skip this part, uh, go ahead and skip ahead to 4205. Um, There's a white guy, white teen, swimmer, you know, college, you know, whatever. Oh, wait. I know where this one's going. Yep. Brock Turner is his name. He raped a woman. He got three months in jail, which, well, he spent three months in jail which was half of what he was sentenced to, so like six months in jail. So let me get this right. This white swimmer, college student, raped another college student, was found guilty of raping another college student, and was sentenced to only six months in prison, and then got out in only three months. Yeah, pretty much, yep. And Willie Simmons told a guy he had a gun, didn't actually have a gun, took $9 from this guy, and then was tackled by the police a few minutes later. And he's currently spending 38 years so far in counting in prison with no possibility of parole. Well, and here's the crazy thing. So the judge in this Brock Turner case, he was really conflicted, you know, like he, he was like hand wringing and like, like shedding a tear as he was like, man, I hate to do this to you, you know, to this rapist, the jurors found him guilty of three felony counts of sexual assault. But then the judge was like, well, I really want to spare this guy a hardship because I, you know, quote, take him at his word. And it was, there's a lot of outrage. It's, it's, it's in the news. You can find it. But yeah, I mean, white guy, college educated swimmer. And the judge is like, oh man, I, I don't want to sentence this guy to, to prison and for this. And ruin his life. And ruin his life. Exactly. Well, I mean, I don't think we need to keep digging through these horrible examples. It doesn't take more than just a a surface perusal of any newspaper on any day of the week in the United States to realize that at any point here, there are basically two functioning justice systems. One that benefits the people who have power. In this case, people like Brock Turner, people like this WorldCom CEO, who, because of the application of their power, are able to wield the justice system in a way that they can slide by with things that would completely devastate other people's lives, and they get minor slaps on the wrist relatively. Meanwhile, people with no power, Willie Simmons, uh, there's tons of examples of people of stories like Willie Simmons. Um, There's a man who was just released also in Alabama for stealing $50 from a bakery. He spent 36 years in prison. Uh, Very similar story. This happens all the time. People are railroaded, run through this. They don't have the representation they need. They, They get caught up on things and they get destroyed by these mandatory minimum laws, these three strike laws these habitual offender statutes. And this is sort of what we want to focus on here in that uh, just the complete injustice that is built into the justice system. And these aren't like things that have always been there. And so we've just accepted them as part of this overarching system. But a lot of these constructs are relatively recent. The idea of the three strikes law in most of the United States, not counting New York, who's had a version of this law since 1797. Yes, that's right, Daniel, 1797, over 200 years ago. But for most of the country, these sorts of ideas were introduced in the 60s and 70s. Um, In a couple states, Alabama introduced theirs in the 70s and 80s as part of the drug war. But it wasn't really until like 1994 when California introduced their very famous three strikes law and the Justice Department issued guidance that other states should follow the same 
Um, and they, these states started introducing legislation to pass this, and it, it's carried through actually still to today. Massachusetts passed their three strikes law um, as, as late as 2012. Most of these laws are still on the books. Not every state has them. They're all sort of varying degrees. Uh, the problem here, as we mentioned earlier before, is this Alabama Habitual Felony Offender Act. Uh, they all have different names. They have different details. And we don't need to get into the nitty gritty of exactly what these are doing. But the basic concept is, is historically in the United States justice system, a lot of decision making is left up to the judge. So, you know, you know how the court works. We've seen all of our lawyer shows. And so, you know, there's two lawyers. There's the defender. There's the prosecutor. They, they have the defendant. Uh, there's a, a jury in there that ultimately make the decision whether this this defendant is guilty or innocent. And then the judge, you know, is making sure everything runs properly and at the end decides the sentence that's to be carried out. That's their role in this. And what the mandatory minimum idea, and this is following uh, something called the Sentencing Reform Act 1984 that the federal government introduced to sort of provide guidelines and how judges should be sentencing certain crimes, but these guidelines very quickly turned into, you know, you really better follow these guidelines unless you got something really exceptional, you know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. And that ultimately paved the way to the mandatory minimums. But what this structure has done is basically taken the ability of judges to actually do anything useful in their courtroom away from them for a huge amount of cases, in particular drug cases, in particular violent felony cases. And there are so many examples, Daniel, of people who have just sort of been caught up in unfortunate circumstances or done a very minor crime whose life has been absolutely destroyed, facing, you know, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, life without parole in prison because of these actions, because of these laws that we've decided are a good thing to have. And I'm going to get to some of these examples in just a moment, but I, I really want to focus first off on, you know, the big question, are these laws effective? And there is some debate on that. Uh, we did see after the introduction of these laws a pretty drastic decrease in violent crime, especially over the next few years. But unfortunately for uh, the people creating these laws, that decrease in violent crime had already started in most states a couple years prior to the introduction of these laws. So it's very hard to sort of suss out, was this the introduction of the three strikes what caused a decrease in violent crime? Or was it just something unrelated and this was already happening and uh, the, the act may have had a difference, it may not had a difference, but we really can't tell from the statistical noise. And you'll see some papers argue one way and some papers argue another way. Uh, it does seem, at the very least, that because there's so much ambiguity in this conversation, that these laws probably didn't do anything. They probably didn't harm things, they probably didn't make them better. But what they did do is make crimes more dangerous for a lot of places. So. Uh, they found typically the the misdemeanor felonies or the, the very small felonies or misdemeanors that might activate some of these habitual offender acts tended to decrease because people were like, well, you know, I don't want to risk getting a strike here on like a very minor crime. But what that meant is it didn't mean that the crimes just weren't done. What it meant is like, well, if I'm going to risk this, I'm going to make it worth my while. Mm. And so, Daniel, what they did was they just ramped up the crimes they were doing. Um, if I was going to mug somebody, you know, that's the same sort of violent assault that would count as a felony on my three strikes. So why don't I just kill that person when I mug them? Because uh, I'm going to be facing the same sort of punishment anyway, and it's one less witness to ultimately turn me in. 
And so this kind of logic actually ended up increasing violent crime in a lot of places and making things more dangerous. And it's not just for, you know, citizens or victims of the crimes that are more dangerous, but also the law enforcement. They found officer shootings and, and, and fatalities increased by almost a third in all the areas that introduced these three strike laws. So it's worse for police. It's worse for citizens. And it's it's certainly worse for the criminals committing these crimes. So, like, who benefits from this, Daniel? I'll give you one guess. Prisons. Oh, wow. There's the magic word. Yes, prisons benefit from this. Oh, I got it right. And by proxy, prosecutors benefit from this. So any action that takes away more ability of uh, judges to have discretion in the way that they run their courtrooms transfer some of that power to the prosecutors. And these are the people who are most buddy-buddy, you know, the DA, whatever, with the local law making bodies, whether it's their their city council, whether it's a state, or whether it's on a federal level. So it shouldn't be surprising that we're seeing this sort of usurping of power from judges to these prosecutors who are the closest when it comes to this electoral bodies that make the laws and ultimately reinforce themselves. It becomes sort of a self-feeding cycle. And then, of course, these prosecutors, these DAs, are buddy-buddy with the police, and then all the police union, you know, is buddy-buddy with the correctional officers. And now we've got this perfect sort of stew going where we just want to have this system where I'm getting tons of power and I'm sending you people and it's going off to prison and it's creating jobs for correctional officers. And, and, and we have a whole basically crooked mafia justice system running with, with very little, you know, outside influence here it just sort of happens naturally because of the introduction of these things. And I'm not saying, Daniel, that these laws are what created this system, but they're definitely the result of some of this thinking and it certainly strengthened the system. And I, I want to just touch on a couple points on on the the drug mandatory minimums because this is where a lot of this got started um to point out just you know how ridiculous some of these things are to point out first the prosecutors the fact that a mandatory minimum exists on certain levels of felony crimes typically they're the higher level crimes gives them a huge bargaining chip when you come in charged with a crime right so say assault one comes with a mandatory minimum charge with it but assault two or or something uh, lower on that doesn't. So what you can do is, you know, I'm the prosecutor, Daniel. You assaulted somebody, and I can say, okay, now Daniel, I've got tons of evidence on here. I could easily charge you with assault one, and you know what that means? It means a mandatory minimum, twenty years, no parole, and that's if the judge is feeling lenient. He can do even more than that if he wants. So I'm going to make a deal with you. You take a plea bargain. And you say, you know, admit you're guilty. I'll give you assault too. I can't guarantee how much you're going to get, but I can guarantee that it won't be a 20-year minimum. And most accused people, whether they committed the crime or not, are unfortunately just stuck with public defenders, many of whom are great people and fantastic lawyers, but are overworked and underpaid. And there aren't enough of them to go around. So they don't have the time necessary to devote to the cases that they are saddled with in our increasingly overburdened legal system. So these public defenders, if they're giving an option to sort of just sort out this case and move on so that they can take on the rest of their unbelievably overloaded docket, they will oftentimes push their client, the defendant, the accused, to go ahead and take this plea deal. They say, yeah, you know, um, I don't think necessarily that, that, you know, they could get an assault one charge on you. I think that the judge might bump it down, but I also can't guarantee that that's the case. I can't guarantee you know, that we can get you off or argue this down. So you're sort of going to be stuck with this. So it's my professional opinion. You should just 
take the deal and then move on. And so a lot of cases do end up plea bargained out like this. And I think, Daniel, we should do a show at some point about the plea bargain system because it's so unbelievably crooked because of things like this. Sounds like it. But this is a huge tool in prosecutors' arsenal in order to basically railroad people, oftentimes innocent people, who are just scared and overwhelmed and know that the science, quote unquote, the forensic science that's convicting them in the first place is all made up anyway. And, and so you, you don't have a choice. You know, you have to do this. You have to take the deal because otherwise the alternative is that much worse. And then, you know, you can't afford to properly defend yourself. So that aside, that's, that's one element of it. Um, in drugs in particular, the mandatory minimums are usually associated with drug weight, right? So if I have, you know, 500 kilograms, that's going to have a mandatory minimum of something. If I have a thousand marijuana plants, that's a mandatory minimum of something. But, you know, when we hear like a thousand grams or, or 10 grams or something, we, we assume what they're talking about is the drug itself. But police and, and prosecutors love to stress the truth, right? We know this is true. How do you, wait, hold up. How do you stretch the truth about the weight of the drug? It either weighed a gram or it didn't. Oh, young, naive <laughs> Daniel. Uh, unfortunately, if you have, say, a kilo of cocaine, um, the odds are very high that this kilo is not pure cocaine. It's been cut with stuff. Oftentimes, you know, half of it is something else. So any logical person would say, well, you know, it's only half cocaine. So that's only 500 grams or say, you know, maybe we're not talking about kilos. Maybe we're just talking about a small thing, you know, like maybe I have, uh, eight grams or whatever. Only four grams are Coke, but say the minimum is eight grams. So, oh no, it weighs eight grams. Boom. You know, that's it. You're done. Or let me take a more dramatic example. LSD, right, Daniel? Mm-hmm. It's, it's a very powerful hallucinogenic, and it weighs basically nothing because you need such a little amount to get you high. And so... I know a lot of white people who have done LSD. Yeah. Let me tell you something. Lot, everyone's done LSD. Um, but, you know, you can't, because the, the, the dosages are so small, you know, maybe 50 micrograms, you can't just, like... It's not a pill. You can't just like take it or something. So what people do is they soak it in water, dissolve it in that, and then soak paper in that so that you have uh, little tabs of paper that are filled with dissolved LSD that you, you know, eat and, and then you get proper dosage. The way that a drug prosecutor would look at this is like, say you have a whole sheet of LSD. Okay. It's, it's maybe a hundred doses, 50 micrograms each, which means that there's 0.005 grams on this paper. Well, the mandatory minimum for LSD is one gram. So, you know, in theory, I don't have enough LSD here to actually hit the mandatory minimum. But the problem is, is that paper weighs four to five grams by itself. So what you're actually going to jail is having a piece of paper that weighs four grams and 0.005 grams of LSD on it. And that's enough to qualify for the mandatory minimum of whatever it is. I don't remember off the top of my head. So that's the second way that, that we can get you with these made up things. Besides, you know, first we are threatening you when we know the charge won't stick. And now we are using these, these grossly inflated numbers. Um, I love seeing, you know, cops claim that they, they had the largest bust in history of methamphetamines or whatever. But, uh, you know, it's, it's just like mostly air or like packaging and stuff. And there's actually hardly anything there. And they're like posing in front of this like little like bag of weed. And they're like, we busted 10 pounds of weed. And it's just like 10 pounds and a drill next to it because they were all in the same bag. Whatever. Cops aside, um, a lot of these amounts by themselves, too, are also just ridiculously too small. The mandatory minimum, for example, of methamphetamines is um, distributions of more than five grams. 
That'll get you up to 40 years in prison with a minimum of five years. But five grams of methamphetamines, which is to give you a perspective about the same as a packet of sweet and low. Okay. Mm-hmm. For a heavy methamphetamine user, that's maybe five days of meth. Okay. But that's enough for five okay. years in prison. This is not somebody who's going out trying to distribute five grams and make money off of that and sell it. Although there are, and I'll get to some of these cases of people who have gone to jail with these mandatory minimums for distributing two paper tabs of LSD. But, you know, this, this law, these mandatory minimums were originally designed in order to, quote, catch kingpin drug runners, these big importers, distributors. But they're being used predominantly, and the vast majority of them, to target basically low-end drug users. Mm. Somebody with five grams of meth isn't taking that meth to sell to someone. It's not worth anything. They are using that for their own personal consumption. It's a victimless crime here. But the justice system doesn't care about that. They've set these arbitrary limits based on nothing in order to try and put as many people in jail as possible. So here we have a mandatory minimum with a ridiculously low minimum amount of drugs that trigger this. But it doesn't even stop there. What the craziest thing that I found out here, Daniel, is that it's not even how many drugs you have. It's how many drugs you claim to have. And this sort of goes back to the same thing with Willie. You remember, he was charged with this assault felony because he claimed he had a gun, right? And so it becomes a violent crime. Willie never had a gun. There was no, like, actual threat of life here in terms of, like, a real life. There was this verbal threat, but nothing more. But that's enough in the eyes of the court in order to charge someone. And I actually, I went and I found this memorandum for all United States attorneys that was sent out in March 13th, 1995 from the Assistant Attorney General, Joanne Harris. And you can find this and I'll link it on the website. It's from justice.gov. Like that's the website it's on. It's a government website thing. And it is about the three strikes law. And it advises uh, all the prosecution attorneys in the United States how to best apply these laws in order to get the maximum punishment against people. And there's a section here. Uh, It starts off, under the statute, a serious violent felony, which includes murder, manslaughter, sex offenses, kidnapping, robbery, and any offense punishable by 10 years or more, which includes as an element the use of force, or that by its nature involves a significant risk of force. And that's the important line. The statute also enumerates certain non-qualifying felonies, including unarmed robbery offenses and arsons that posed no threat to human life. Okay. So these two in particular are what I want to talk about here. The next point. She writes. So if I set fire in a trash can, I've yes, I've committed a felony potentially. Yes, and let me. I'll, I'll get to that. Um, an unarmed robbery offense may serve as a basis for three strikes sentencing if the offense involved the threat of use of a firearm or other dangerous weapon. And she writes a little bit more than that, but this is exactly what happened to Willie. And of course, this was written after Willie had already been sentenced and in prison for a long time. But this concept is carried out still all over the place today. And so if you mug someone, you know, that is, depending on how much you steal, probably a misdemeanor. But if you mug someone and you say, I have a gun, and you don't actually have a gun, it doesn't matter. Now you have committed a felony that is qualifying you potentially for a three-strike sentencing. It's just that act of just saying, I have a gun, which, which is crazy that you can just say a couple words and suddenly, you know, now you're committing a felony where before it was nothing. But that's how the court sees this. And the same thing, as you pointed out, with arsons, you know, she makes the advice that arson should not serve as the basis for three strikes in this thing if the defendant establishes by clear and convincing evidence that the offense 
posed no threat to human life and the defendant reasonably believed that it posed no threat to human life. But with that said, I know plenty of cases of people who have been tried and found guilty and subjected to these mandatory minimum sentencing by burning empty buildings or in some cases, um, a lot of times in, in animal liberation things where they'll set like a lab on fire that's empty. Um, the court, you know, will see that as terrorism, even though no one was in there. And they'll say, well, you didn't know anyone was in there. And they actually flip the argument on itself where the where the defendant can say, oh, I really didn't know someone was in there. I thought it was empty. The government can say, well, you know, you didn't know that was true. So, boom, felony three strikes, lifetime prison, whatever. Mm. And this goes back to this drug point I was just making. It's all connected, Daniel, in that just the same way you can say I have a gun and that counts. Say, say, say I get some weed and I, I get like the tiniest amount of weed and I say it's like one gram. It's nothing. Right. And as a joke, I text you, oh, man, I just got the biggest load of weed. I got a thousand grams here. I got a whole kilo block. And then for some reason, I get arrested. They find these drugs on me. They, they book me. They look at my phone and they see that text. And I'm the evil DA, but I really want to get my, my numbers up for arrests and convictions of drug crimes, especially large drug crimes, because it looks really good because re-election's coming and people want me to be tough on crime, whatever. I can charge myself in this example with... Uh, you want me to be the evil DA guy? Whatever. One of us is the evil DA guy. One of us <laughs> texted the other about a thousand grams, having a kilo of weed. Well, uh, whatever it is, I can count this amount of, of weed or drugs or whatever that I claimed to have or I bragged about having or, you know, if I joked about having it, but they said the joke could be taken literally as part of the actual amount of drugs that I, I have. So in the eyes of the court, in the eyes of the judge, in the eyes of the lawyer, this is a thousand and one grams of so, hold weed. On. So you're telling me that if you have a gram, like the DEA finds you with a gram of some drug, but you texted me like, hey, bro, coming over with a kilo, then now, and just to be clear, so like a kilo, that's bigger than a gram, right? It's a, it's a thousand grams. Okay, so I'm, I'm new to all this. I'm, I'm this metric system. very new to this. I'm, I've never seen a gram of anything That's a lot. before, so I'm trying to, trying to process this. Um, so because you sent that text, they're going to say that they, they captured a kilo worth of drugs on you. Mm -hmm. and that's what you're going to get charged for? They can't. I'm not saying they will, but they absolutely, under the guidance of the court, and it has happened in other cases where there's plenty of precedence for this, they can include that number. And oftentimes that number is found and only utilized in a way when they want to trigger these mandatory minimum sentencing requirements. So then say in New York, we have these uh, 15 year minimums for a lot of crimes, you know, boom, I'm doing 15 in prison because of a text. This is all very possible. And, and so remember too, that this was all written and, and created in order to try and catch those, those kingpins, the people doing the big importation, the big uh, distribution, sure, whatever. And sure. so in this case, it sort of makes sense. Like if somebody says that they're shipping in, you know, a thousand kilos and, but they only recover 200 and they want to charge them more, you know, that's why the law was written. It's just been abused by prosecutors. But the thing is, is that it's, it's been abused by prosecutors, but it also ends up catching tons of people. So if I am a drug runner for this pack of there's a thousand kilos somewhere, but I, in my car only have one or two cause they split it up. And this happens all the time. I will be charged as trafficking that entire thousand kilos, even though I'm just like a lowly whatever. And, and this is routine in how the DEA and the, the uh, various attorneys will actually apply the law. 
there's tons of examples of this. So to, to break out some percentages and look at how this, this stuff is actually applied, um, I have some numbers from 2011 that broke down who is actually being charged with mandatory minimums in their relation to the drug trade. So, and again, this was all written to catch the high level perpetrators. And with that said, only 10.9% of federal defendants are considered the high level suppliers and importers. Okay. Then next is the wholesalers of any amount. So this could be somebody who has, you know, a huge amount or just like a single brick that they break up for other people. That's 21%. The street level dealers who oftentimes, you know, just have a, a small baggie with them. That's 17.2%. Couriers, those people who I just mentioned who might only have one or two kilos on them, but get charged for these massive shipments. Uh, that's 23%. So all of this is, is like 72, 75% of the total amount of people charged for drug crimes with mandatory minimums. So what is that last 25%, which is the largest block of people? These are almost entirely low level offenders. So, you know, that, that person who was getting a meth fix with their sweet and low pack of meth and they got picked up for that. Uh, and then a significant portion are just marginally involved friends and family. So uh, I've read examples of somebody who, for example, co-signed a lease for a house that one of their friends was using for um, shuttling drugs. And that was enough to trigger a mandatory minimum. Wow. I've read cases of, of I've read uh, cases of somebody who was approached by a CI, a confidential informant, to distribute some LSD. The guy didn't want to, but he's in between jobs. And eventually he agreed that he didn't want to be a drug dealer, but he would take two tabs to sell to his friends. And that was enough to trigger this mandatory minimum. So there's all sorts of people caught up in this and have their lives destroyed over basically nothing. And the last thing I really want to touch on here, Daniel, with these mandatory minimums, in particular with the drug industry, is that, again, remember, these were supposed to be about helping catch kingpins, right? And so the one of the only ways that you can actually avoid a mandatory minimum sentence, and there are basically two ways to do that. So uh, the judge's hands are bound. They're not allowed to give you any less than what the court demands. And a lot of judges are really angry about this and they hate these systems, but they're, you know, they don't have a choice. Anyway, um, the only ways to get around it, the only one that really matters in this conversation is if you become a snitch, an informant, that provides information that's material enough to the point that you can put a lot of other people in jail, then the uh, prosecutor and the government are allowed to work with you in order to cut you a deal that can override the mandatory minimum. But, and here's why this law makes no sense. Remember, these were intended to catch the big distributors, but the only people who actually know enough information in order to be able to accurately snitch and take advantage of these breakdowns in the mandatory minimums are the people at the top, the big distributors. And the, Oh, because they know everybody. Yeah, they know everyone. The people on the bottom who represent the vast majority, so again, this is uh, over 50% of the people captured. It's actually closer to 70% of the people arrested with mandatory minimums and ultimately charged with those, don't know anything because they're the bottom level of the rung or even completely unrelated to this entire distribution system. So they have absolutely no choice. They don't have anybody they can snitch on. They don't have any way to make a deal. And they are just caught up in the system and punished for that. Meanwhile, the people that this is intended to punish are the ones who are able to actually get out of punishment 
from this system because they are able to turn over information, whether it's relevant or accurate or not, in order to mitigate this mandatory minimum sentencing. And it's it's happened plenty of times, and the entire law is broken on every single possible point. It doesn't punish the people that it was intended to punish, and it does punish so many people whose lives have just been incidentally caught up in this, or they're at a point in the system where they're doing very little to actual damage to people, but have had their lives destroyed by this. All right, so hold up. Let, let me slow it down real quick, David, because you're, you're throwing a lot of information at me. It's coming at me pretty fast, and I'm not currently on anything that helps me process a lot of information all at one time. So Just grab a sweet and low of methamphetamines. and. So what you're telling me is... The, these minimum sentencing laws and all this, like, you know, we're going after the kilos type laws, were created to go ostensibly after the big shots, like the Scarfaces, because it's like, oh, we need to take out the big level distributors that are sending drugs through the courses of our public veins. But then individual cops and the DA and the prosecutors realized that they could just trump, you know, use these to trump up charges against low level offenders to send them to prison for years. And then, these laws became used to actually get cooperation from those big-time drug distributors that they were originally intended for uh, who get no jail time or no punishment. More or less. Wow. That's one for the books, Johnson. You know, David, I got to admit, um, now I'm a little angry. When you, when you get into this, all the, the legal details and this law is supposed to do this, but it does that, I don't want anyone to get the impression that we actually need to debate the laws. And Oh, the, the, the answer here is not, we need to think more carefully about the sentencing, you know, the oh, yeah. laws that we create to send someone to prison for this crime. And This is not actually about making somebody serve a 43 or 44 billion year sentence. Like that, if that's the point you're getting from this, you've miss, missed the entire direction of this conversation. Well, well, for the benefit of the listener, let's break it down because crime is made up. We have this, uh, you know, maybe some of us have this impression that crime is like this universal thing, like, oh, of course, you know, you know, we have the Ten Testaments and, you know, crime is universal. Ten, ten Commandments. Ten Commandments, exactly. From the two test, there was two Testaments, five on each to make the Ten Commandments. So, there are two tablets or something, you know, two, two stone tablets. I think I, I think I know what you're saying. From the mountaintop. But, Crime is made up, and it's in. And these laws are created so that those in power can control who they want to control, and or exclude those they want to. And as an example of this, since we're talking about the war on drugs, let's go to the source of the war on drugs, which is the Nixon campaign. And I want to just read one quote from Nixon's former domestic policy chief, John Ehrlichman. Uh, this was a top political aide. He was uh, involved in the Watergate scandal. This is, a, this is a close guy to Nixon, okay? This is what he said about 1968, which is a really important date in the, the history of not just the United States and the social movements at the time, but also the reaction by power structures and the uh, mass incarceration and all these three-strike laws that followed. This is what John Ehrlichman says, quote, The Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies the anti-war left, and black people. You understand what I'm saying? We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana, 
and blacks with heroin, and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. End quote. As illuminating as this is, this reads more like a brag than it does like a a come-to-Jesus confession, right? This whole discussion in me just really illuminates the idea that those who are valued by the, by the people in power, they're unfairly given leniency. They're allowed to do whatever the hell they want, while everyone else gets devalued. They get harsher punishments. And these sentences, or, or lack of, they just show us who our government values. Clearly, it's bankers, it's rich people who steal from the poor and vulnerable. It's, and it's not the poor. It's not our black and brown communities. And another point that strikes me is uh, from our interview with Chris and Bonnie, Bonnie pointed out that Willie is a veteran of the Army. I don't know if we mentioned that Willie did serve in the Army. Um, he served in the Army and struggled with drug addiction when he came back. And that's when these nonviolent offenses took place and ultimately led to his demise. And how interesting, David, that one of the most consistent and highest funding propaganda that is shoved down our throats through movies, television shows, commercials, speeches, sports games, and the like, is how much we're supposed to venerate the military as the shining beacon of American freedom or whatever. Yet it's clear our government and those in power don't value or care about who actually serve in the military because those people, they're sent back in body bags or with PTSD. Many of their families and them, they spend the rest of their lives poor on food stamps with health insurance that doesn't cover the chronic fallout their body has underwent from service. In Willie's case, you get the resulting drug addiction. And then one of these people mugs a a guy unarmed for nine bucks, and he gets locked in a cage for life. Meanwhile, bankers steal millions from elderly folks, white teens rape women, soft drink company executives murder journalists, Pharma company executives flood coal mining towns with opioids, and they intentionally price gouge insulin so diabetics of all ages have to ration their medicine and die. Arms dealers sell weapons to our so-called enemies. FBI agents murder black activists for feeding breakfast to children. CIA agents murder elected officials for giving free bread to their citizens in Latin America. World leaders and billionaires parade and flaunt their pedophilia right in front of our eyes. White cops gun down black women in their own homes, hashtag say her name. Agricultural companies dump poison on the land. Companies sell our medical, financial, and other personal information to the highest bidder. We have fashion companies, Target, and every other international conglomerate literally employing slaves right now. Celebrities are defrauding the education system. Oil company executives knew as early as the 1970s that their actions were causing climate change. The lizard people in the government- Daniel, Daniel. What? I think we get it. Well, none of these people get jack shit from our so-called justice system because we live in a bullshit system. Well, you know, Daniel, going through this list that you have here, which is an impressive, well-thought-out, excellent rant, I have to say that I think what we're seeing, actually, is the recognition that society only values the people who create, quote-unquote, wealth. These people getting away with crimes, these, these organizations, these companies, these three-letter agencies, all these are committing crimes, but they're generating wealth and profit for somebody else. But somebody like Willie, you know, they looked at him, society did, and they said, well, maybe, you know, he'll live a life. How much money is going to generate? I don't know. Probably not a lot. How can we generate profit off of him? 
And and for one second here, I just want to laugh at the idea that that he deserves or was going to get some sort of special respect because he's a veteran. Considering the way that this country treats their veterans, anybody who's dealt with the VA understands this. They don't give a shit about those people because they've already done their bit generating wealth for the American colonial imperialistic empire, right? Once you've been made useful for this practice, generating wealth for Northrop Grumman, whatever, then they throw you away. You have no more knees that work. You're going to have a lifetime of body problems and they're going to spend as little as possible trying to take care of you because they see you as disposable. And Willie was seen as disposable. Somebody somewhere sat down and did the math and they said, well, you know, it's pretty expensive to lock somebody up for their life. Um, a couple of years ago, what, 2015, it cost $32,000, $35,000, give or take, to hold someone in prison for a year. And that's one of the lower estimates. Some states are much more. Well, he spent 38 years in prison so far, right? Mm -hmm. That's already over $1.2 million that have been spent keeping Willie locked up. That's a lot. Where did that money go? It went to prisons. It went to correctional officers. It went to their unions. It went to the entire system of this broken justice system. They profited off of this. They looked at Willie and they said, yeah, he might develop however much money. Maybe he's going to make $18,000 a year for his life. You know, but he's going to be a liability. He's a veteran. He's got problems. We're going to have to pay for him. But locked up in prison, Willie suddenly becomes an asset. You know, not because he's generating anything or because he's whatever, but because the very act of imprisoning somebody creates a new market. And this market is ripe to be exploited by those with no sort of ethics or morals except for the pursuit of more profit. And that is what our justice system has become. That's why people who defrauded, you know, hundreds of thousands or millions or billions of dollars, get off with slaps on the wrist because they are either the ones pulling the strings, the purse strings, or they're the ones filling those purses in the first place. If you can identify yourself to society as somebody who generates wealth, then you can get away with basically anything. But for those unfortunate, at the bottom rung of society's ladder, people like Willie Society is going to chew you up and spit you out in the way that is most profitable for it. And unfortunately for so many people, especially those black and brown brothers and sisters in this country, and not only in the United States, but around the world, that chewed up and spit out profit is incarceration. It's slavery. It's being taken advantage of in every possible way that somebody can in order to generate a profit for somebody somewhere else. And that is what our criminal justice system is these days. I'm reading a book right now, David. I uh, just started it. It's, um, it's called Golden Gulag, Prisons, Surplus, Crisis, and Opposition in, Globalization, or in Globalizing California by Ruth Wilson Gilmore. I highly recommend it. Ruth Wilson Gilmore, she's a black woman with a lot of years of activism and research behind her. She's friends with Angela Davis. She writes a lot of good stuff. I'm just diving into this book for the first time. I think it's really good because it, it goes into like the nuance of why prisons exist and what their true function is. And she's really looking at this in the context of California, which has a um, really important history in the development of this system. And I just want to go through, so I'm, I'm in the first chapter, but she lays out a lot of the concepts in the introduction. So I just want to kind of like go over them really quick because I think it's really difficult to wrap our minds around why this justice system exists the way it does. And there are typical arguments you hear from both sides that aren't necessarily accurate. I mean, it's very nuanced. And so 
the four arguments you hear on the side of like why prisons should exist, the really hardline, you know, justice type people, is that prisons serve a combination of punishment, deterrence, rehabilitation, and incapacitation, which basically all aim to take a criminal and do something to them so they either don't commit the crime again, or if they are just going to commit crimes, you at least remove them from society, all ostensibly to create stability and safety for everyone outside of the prison. And as she points out in the book, all of these are wrong. They're completely, just objectively, not true because everywhere geographically in this country that there are prisons and a high rate of you know, associated uh, criminalization, and all the police activity that goes along with that, all else being equal, when you compare these places to similar geographic areas where these prisons do not exist, there is a marked increase in instability and so-called crime, not the other way around. The crime and instability follows the prisons. And let me read one quote that might explain a little bit why. <clears throat> quote, if places that spare the cage are calmer than places that use imprisonment more aggressively, why is this so? Why wouldn't higher rates of incapacitation produce more stability? For one thing, Households stretch from neighborhood to visiting room to courtroom with a consequent thinning of financial and emotional resources. Looking around the block at all the homes, research shows that increased use of policing and state intervention in everyday problems hasten the demise of the informal customary relationships that social calm depends on. People stop looking out for each other. They stop talking about anything that matters in terms of neighborly well-being. Cages induce or worsen mental illness in prisoners, most of whom eventually come out to service-starved streets. Laws such as lifetime bans from financial aid and fiscal constraints displacing dollars from social investment to social expense lock former prisoners out of education, employment, housing, and many other stabilizing institutions of everyday life. In such inhospitable places, everybody isolates. And when something disruptive, confusing, or undesirable happens, people dial 911. As a result, crime goes up, along with unhappiness. And those who are able to do so move away in search of a better environment, concentrating unhappiness in their wake. In other words, prisons wear out places by wearing out people, irrespective of whether they have done time. Okay, so if prisons are not doing this ostensible stabilizing thing in our societies, then why do they exist? And so on the other spectrum of this, of this argument, we hear typical things, and some of these we've talked about on the show in other episodes. And again, we have four counter explanations for prisons, that they either function to produce profit for private corporations, or they function to produce slave labor for the economy, or that they're social welfare job programs for rural white communities. And there's truth to all of these, but they're insufficient on the whole to explain why we have so many prisons. For one thing, 95% of prisons are publicly owned and operated. And yes, private companies make money off of all prisons, but it's not enough in their, you know, if you look at their market share to explain this total systemic proliferation. Uh, secondly, it's obvious to see that prisons are not revitalizing or enriching rural populations. And both Azadeh Shashahani and Emilcar Valencia pointed this out in our Borders episode regarding ICE detention facilities. By the way, that's episode 96, Walls That Divide Us. 
you should check it out. It's only seven hours long. <clears throat> and for the argument that you know prisons exist to generate slave labor, most prisoners are idle. E- even though every single state in this country makes prisoners available for cheap labor. And yes, you know, you can watch that documentary, 13th Amendment. And we did do an episode on prisons that discusses the slave labor aspect. That was episode 40, Land of the Three, which I also recommend because we interview an uh, Oakland, California prison abolitionist. Can I also interject and recommend, there's a documentary called Incarcerating Us that I worked on a couple years ago that covers a lot of this mandatory minimum talk and is also an excellent overview of these topics. Yeah. And, and there's big truth to this. The fact that incarcerating black people for cheap labor, well, for one thing, I mean, it really did help fuel industrial development in the South following the outlaw, uh, ostensible outlaw of slavery. But that's no longer enough to explain the modern system we have. Which brings me to, uh, I guess, what is the main thrust of this book, which uh, is still yet to be seen. I have, I have more chapters to read, but prisons ultimately function as a subtle but powerful force for statecraft and the control of people who are displaced by capital. And they also serve to break down intersectional solidarity uh, among people. Now, part of this recognition is the fact that crime, like we talked about, is just made up. And who we put in prison is less about any real moral underpinning and more about arbitrary laws that serve political ends. The fact that prisons destroy communities, from that you know, quote that I just read, that's part of their function. And, it, and it's very useful, particularly beginning in the late 60s, during we had in this country broad solidarity movements. You know, people who were opposed to the war in Vietnam and Southeast Asia uh, were able to find common ground with anti-apartheid movements in South Africa. You had black power movements that were connecting the liberation struggle abroad, like in both first world so-called and so-called third world countries. You, you had students joining workers and factory walkouts and other legal labor struggles across Mexico, the U.S. and Europe. This was 1968. That's the period of the Nixon administration that John Ehrlichman, or however you say his name, was talking about when he said, we had a real crisis and we had to find a way to break these people apart. That was one of the functions of prisons. From her book, quote, prisons are partial geographical solutions to political economic crises organized by the state, which is itself in crisis, end quote. And to close this out, her, her book specifically dives deep into the development of prisons in California, which rose to become the world's fifth largest economy by 1997, and which, quote, the region's development into metropolitan and agricultural empires required extensive labor power, huge infusions of public and private capital, lengthy networks of human, water, and product transport systems, and a state sufficiently powerful to maintain order and promote expansion amid complexity, end quote. And I think looking at California is very illuminating in this case because this very rapid development was contextualized by also the greatest of, you know, diversity of labor and migration and just a general flux of people you could find in America. Quote, 19th century California developed an industrial and agricultural proletariat rather swiftly. In addition to the gradual dispossession of Mexicanos and of Anglo homesteaders whose farming failed to pay, many workers idled by depletion of gold mines or completion of railroads. They had no recourse but to seek wage employment in factories and fields. 
Organized labor had different rates of success around the state. Victories for white workers in the San Francisco Bay Area, many of whom were veterans of radical struggles elsewhere, were offset by across-the-board defeats of all workers in Los Angeles and the inland agricultural counties. Capital triumph in courtrooms and through state-sanctioned vigilante terror. California's white supremacist anti-capital working men's party which emerged briefly from the economic strife of the 1870s, left as its principal legacy the federal law excluding Chinese immigration. Ample but generally disorganized and segregated labor formed the nucleus of the state's rapid growth into the next century. So she goes on and describes this, this, the flux of land for both railroad and agricultural development. And the point is that California's history is one of massive upheaval in labor, capital, and land. And this necessitated what became the birthplace for rapid incarceration in America. Prisons served as a way for the state to essentially manage this upheaval. Because you had idle workers, right, who could not make the transition from their depleted gold mine job to the factory way down the, the road. And so Preventing this, these displaced and marginalized people from forming community with each other and potentially becoming part of broad struggles of resistance toward capital became an, a very important function of, of mass incarceration. I mean, which I guess ultimately, David, you're right, this is all profit motive motivated, but I, I just wanted to, to point out the nuance of it's not so easy to say like, oh, well, if we just follow the money, you know, prisons generate X amount of capital for, you know, profit for these corporations. Mm -hmm. It's really about changing our ability as communities to form in this country. It's, it's about disrupting how we move geographically. It's about destroying communities. Like, I think that quote is really powerful when she's basically saying like, if there's a prison in a community, everyone is in prison, not just those in the cage. It's their whole families. It's their mm -hmm. every institution within their their community. Yeah, this was one of the points we really tried to drive home when we were doing our border series episode and talk about how the persecution of immigrants in a community not only affects the immigrants there or elsewhere, but also that entire community. How these types of attacks on one individual can explode out and make everybody less safe because of this. And, and that's a great point. And and Profit and power are inextricably linked, and uh, you can't separate one from the other. And I think that's a great one, too, right there. Oh, as we close out this episode, I just want to reiterate a couple things. Uh, most notably that, you know, we are not saying that we need some sort of harsher or more, more quantified way of sentencing people that is quote-unquote fair. Um, you know, we're not saying that all these people should be serving enormous life sentences or they shouldn't be serving any sentences at all. Uh, this is, you know, not an intro episode about prison abolition. There's a lot of excellent research and theory written about that stuff. We can maybe link some of these resources if you want to start diving down that topic. But this is, once again, just a very small segment of this vast, unbelievably unfair system that dictates, oftentimes invisibly for a lot of people who don't take part of it, huge swaths of this nation, both in terms of of uh, just straight up people being locked up, but also in these more insidious ways that power is applied by the state and profit is extracted from individuals. So being aware of this is important and, and understanding that the answer isn't necessarily more punitive 
actions, you know, taking somebody who stole billions of dollars and giving them more ridiculous punishment is not going to fix that. Taking somebody who stole hundreds of thousands of dollars and giving them a crazy punishment is not going to fix that. Taking somebody like Brock Turner, who raped somebody and got off basically scot-free and giving them a lifetime sentence is not going to fix that. So we need to start asking ourselves, you know, what can we actually do to heal communities? What can we actually do in order to find justice? And I use that word for the only time without air quotes for the people who are the victims of these crimes and the communities that also are affected by these actions. There's a lot of scholarship. There's a lot of work. There's a lot of development already in this, this field. And we certainly don't have time to tack these on at the end of an episode. But these are the types of things you should start thinking about now. And once again, we'll post some links and resources on the website, ashesashes.org, for you to check out and start searching for what you think might be answers for here. But understand that these systems that we take for granted probably can't be fixed. The justice system as it stands right now, it's just being legislated into worse and worse positions, actually. And maybe we could repeal these three strike laws. Maybe we could repeal these mandatory minimums as a start to something better. But the fact of the matter is the power that prosecutors have, the power that legislators have, the power that judges have, all of this is broken irreparably. We didn't even really, Daniel, get into uh, more immaterial ways that sentencing is unfair. For example, we have this hilarious paper on attractiveness and what that means for the legal system in that. Mm -hmm. To give you the very, 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 very short version, um, attractiveness doesn't have too much of a difference in terms of whether you're found guilty or not, but it has vast differences in what type of sentences you ultimately face. Uh, there's even a hilarious graph that measures, you know, sentences giving and how baby faced the, um, defendant is. Check it out. Links on the website. It's interesting reading. Um, and, and maybe in like a more fair justice system, we would have the, the jury entirely walled off from the rest of the room that could only hear audio. So they can't be affected by this kind of stuff, but we're not, no one's even interested in having these types of conversations or making these, these sort of minor modifications at this point, because you're either committed on one end to upholding the justice system in a way that continues to benefit you. Or you look at this and quite justifiably say this whole thing is broken and we can't possibly fix it. It's built on hundreds of years of broken precedents that is makes no sense and is destroying people's lives left and right. And then we have more and more legal systems tacked onto this, more legislation that's ratcheting these, these sort of punishments even worse. The whole thing, it's done. It's broken. <laughs> we gotta scrap it and start over. And and that's that's where a lot of prison abolition comes from. The recognition that the justice system, air quotes are back on that, is anything but. And it can't be reformed back into a way that once again resembles the true function of that word, but we have to be looking at something new and saying, what can we do to actually find justice, no air quotes, for all of us? I couldn't agree more. Well, as always, Daniel, that's a lot to think about. Um, but think about it and no, I, I say that's a lot to think about. Oh wait, you say that. I say that. <laughs> you do it. Do it um as always, David, that's a lot to think about. No, I, I, I but think of, feel like I need a second take here. Now my flow's off, David. It's like Okay, do it do it again. All right. <clears throat> that's a lot to think about. <laughs> there you go. As always, Daniel. But think about it. We hope you will. You can find links to all sorts of resources, all the sources we didn't necessarily use in this episode, but we thought were interesting, some of that prison abolitionist writing, and much more on our website, ashesashes.org. 
And as always, a lot of time and thought and research goes into making these episodes possible. And we will never use ads to support this show. So if you like it and would like us to keep going, you, our listener, can support us by giving us a review, recommending us to a friend or family member, or sending us financial love at patreon.com slash ashesashescast. And I do apologize. I'm very sorry. Uh, I will send stickers out soon. <laughs> I just, you know, printing the, you know, all, all the labels and there's no excuse. I know. There's no excuse, but I will do it. Sounds like an excuse. If you aren't getting enough ashes, ashes right now, and we know you're all starved for content, don't worry. Content is being created. We are on Twitter, Ashes, Ashes Cast. We are on Facebook, Ashes, Ashes Cast. We are on Reddit, r slash Ashes, Ashes Cast. We are on Instagram, Ashes, Ashes Cast. We are on Twitch, twitch.tv slash Ashes, Ashes Cast. Give us a subscribe. Give us a follow. That's, that's the real place to check out because that is exclusive content you won't find anywhere else. So be sure to check us out there. Uh, we've also, uh, that's a lot of things. What else? What are we missing? We have a phone number. <laughs> we have a phone number. That's right. We have a phone number you can call and leave messages on. And that number is 313-99-ASHES. That's 313-992-7437. And I do feel like, you know, the intention of that is to, to highlight voicemails on the show i think at this point though they've just been like we listen to them and we're like man that's awesome that's yeah. a great voicemail we got we're yeah. like that's a cool story <laughs> we're gonna do something with them eventually we promise uh we're also on discord come check us out on discord that's our favorite community to interact with um there's an invite link to that on the website ashesashes.org just click community discord invite and send us an email Send us, oh, yeah, we have an email address. It's contact at ashesashes.org. We read them. We do appreciate them. Thank you so much. We, we did get a, um, some pretty encouraging emails after the last show now that we're back. So we do appreciate that. And we'll try to keep this energy going. Yeah, and this show exists because of an email. So thank you for reaching out to us about it. Yeah. Really. Yeah. Well, that about wraps it up for this week, and we will be back sometime soon with a new episode. We hope you'll tune in for that. But in the meantime, do check us out on our experimental talk show format on Twitch. Uh, we'll be live before the next episode on that. So we hope to see you there. But until then, this is Ashes Ashes. Bye. Bye-bye.